Welcome to the InVino Fab Podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Patrice. We're co-hosts for the InVino Fabulum. That means in wine story. We think there are tales that need to be told about women, wine, work, and what's happening in the world. This podcast was created to have a chat about a few of these things and more. Tune into this podcast to learn and share as we talk about passion projects, recent reads, and random wine facts. Today we welcome our guest, Dr. Hannah Gore, to join us for the InVino Fab Podcast. Hannah Gore was invited to join Solera Holdings last year to design and develop their business school, initially launching to 46 countries across 26 companies. It is now set to expand to 88 countries by the end of this year. During her 13 years at the Open University, the OU, Hannah developed content for circa 10 million learners worldwide on a variety of platforms, including Amazon Kindle, Google, iTunes U. She has also completed an undergrad three postgrads, and her doctorate in engagement in massive open online courses, otherwise known as MOOCs, and subsequent impact on learning design. Her doctorate is the largest published single-source data set on MOOCs, and she holds the record for being the youngest female MBA graduate in the OU's 50-year history. She holds four international awards to her name. Hannah Gore is someone I have followed online, her story. She's actually very reflective and a very good storyteller. So if she's not talking about something vegan, something about her lovely pup travels, self-improvement, living her best life, then I don't know like what she's talking about online. So Hannah, welcome to Invino Fab. Hi. Hi, everyone. What I get to do is literally skim, like list jobs on your resume or CV, and then we'll come back and touch points. Um, so Tell me how you tell me where you are and how you got to there. Okay, so I work as a talent development manager for a company called Solera Holdings, whose head office is in the US, but I work for the EMEA head office in Paris, but I actually reside just outside Oxford in England. Um, and I basically run the business school for the company in forty six countries across 26 companies in Europe but we're about to expand now to encompass the US side so it'll be 88 countries and I don't know how many companies yet okay so and this is yeah. because I knew you coming through um, a PhD program working at the mm. Open University doing all things MOOCs and design and assessing learning so this is a big change this is a huge change, it's, it, but at the same time, it's quite a welcome change. I'd spent nearly 14 years at the Open University, um, both academic career-wise and as a student, and this was such a phenomenal offer that came along that I couldn't turn it down. It was the opportunity to create my own business school using my own architecture and I could set everything from the curriculum to the design of the content of the courses to um, how the programs were going to be put together, how it was going to be delivered, what the platform was going to look like. I just had carte blanche and that never comes along. Um, you always get a legacy. Somebody did it this way. Our department used to do it this way, such and such this. And I didn't have any of it. And I did, but I, I did have to start with nothing. That was the challenge but created something as a result that is 100% my own, which I'm not sure I'll ever get that opportunity again. So I had to take it, really. Yeah, a blank slate is lovely. It's like um, a startup in something that you really want to do and you get to create from the beginning. So um, you have a unique path, though, from what we were in a conversation <laughs> about, um, of getting uh, your doctorate and something yeah. you never planned to do. And it's true that you don't even have an undergrad degree. Yeah, that's completely true. I'm one of these people that is probably about as unconventional as you can get, I think, in every avenue of my life. I never seem to take the obvious route to anything, sometimes by my own decision, sometimes because it just happens that way. But I joined the Open University um, after a non-academic career. I began in sales and marketing. I then moved into the prison service where I used to profile prisoners into the likelihood of them reoffending and to what rate and then I moved into um, the Open University because I was referred there by another government department as a really great place to go work and um, I did an undergraduate level three certificate in management which is like the final year of a undergrad university degree. I then went on and did a postgraduate diploma, my MBA, my MSc and then on to my doctorate 
but I never intended that path to ever lead to a doctorate. I was I was going to stop at MBA and then I kind of carried on to MSc and it was because of a colleague I was working with at the time, Professor Simon Buckingham Shum, who's now over in Australia. And I just had a thought experiment one day and he said, do you know that this will make for a great doctorate proposal? At the time, I didn't even know what made a doctorate proposal. This was not my aim. Um, And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, you should do that. And so it developed over time. Um, It was submitted. In the end, by the time we got a um, set of supervisors on board, my proposal changed because that's just how doctorates work. And and then I completed my doctorate in three and a half years while still working full-time at the OU. Pretty brilliant. Like, I have no life. <laughs> well, you were pretty dedicated. And so I think I started yeah. following your path online and you had worked with mm-hmm. um, Becca and Martin and others in yes. the open. So I was kind of like, oh, who is this character? I think she's doing some pretty rad things. And I was kind of mm. like, I knew that you progressed really fast, but I didn't realize it was that quick. Um, so... You're not ambitious at all, like a, a couple no, of guests I've spoken no. to. No, you have no, like not type A or focus, but you seem very self-driven though in a lot of mm. things that you do. And that's kind of um, yeah. like, I think you focus on a goal, it sounds like, and you're like, that's what I want to be doing and this is where I want to go. Yeah, I, I, I see something that I want. I, if I want it badly enough, I'll go for it. But I have a tendency of then making it more challenging just to make it more interesting. <laughs> I I can't stop myself. I mean, you know, it could be something like, um, for example, in October, I'm running across the Sahara Desert. I thought that sounded like a good idea. Um, and so, obviously... This past October, this one coming up? This one coming up. Oh, so you'll good. see this unveiling Great. itself on Instagram. Um, I haven't actually announced it on Instagram. So um, this will be coming as a piece of news. But, yeah, it's, it's all part of a bigger goal to get to something else. Uh, and I actually get this from my, my father, and the reason why I get it from him is he's, again, a very, he was a very extrovert man. Um, and I actually dedicated my thesis to my father and to my dog. Um, and it's because he passed away when I was 23 and he was 53. And I had a very conscious shock at that point to go, life's really short. And so I have to pack it 24-7. And a lot of people who follow me on Instagram say, do you even breathe? I'm not sure I do, um, but I have to fill my life constantly with stuff um, to do, experiences to have. Um, so they make for really good memoirs in my later life. Absolutely. And I think I think that sort of um, experience and exposure, uh, losing someone who's so close to you that early, that reminds you that life is short. Like we're faced with these things that can flip something, can change your life at any yeah. time. and. Uh, happenstance can happen, but you can also make it happen. And that's, mm-hmm. I think that's very impressive. So I never said you're doing too much. That's why I follow you. That's kind of, what's <laughs> uh, so you're not bored or boring because you're doing things that are kind of exciting and driven. So I'd like that Sahara desert though. What's inspiring that I'm a runner as well. And I'm kind of like, mm. yeah, it's, it's quite a simple plan. Um, she says, talking about running. Sahara <laughs> um, I made myself a goal. Um, I'm going to do 40 things in my year before I'm 40. Cool. And this goal involves um, my friends nominating 39 of them. And the 30th one, uh, the 40th one that I wanted to have for myself was to do the Marathon de Saab, which is the hardest marathon in the world for any ultra marathon runners out there. Um, it's it's a phenomenally long, hard ultra through the Sahara Desert. So I decided that this year I would do a couple of days, she says casually, um, 84 kilometers through the Sahara Desert over two-day period to see what it felt like. Um, from that, my plan next year is I've got a 184-mile ultra and a 200 kilometer ultra um the only problem in registering with ultras in the uk is they either appear in miles or kilometers so you're constantly bouncing between the two um and then from that i will have enough energy i don't know uh target goal vision that i think that i can then do 350 or kilometers through the sahara desert uh and then you know the other day one popped in my inbox and i was like would you like to do the half marathon to Saab? in Peru and I was like ah I haven't been to Peru and so my brain just starts going because 
it seems like a really good idea at the time. Um, and that's, that's just how I kind of end up doing things really. Um, so, so yeah, so it all, it all features. I always make sure that there's a, there's a risk. There's always a risk. There's a challenge, but then there's a plan to get me to that challenge. And then I know I'm achieving it comfortably, which means that I can give it a bit more than a hundred percent each time. I think that's smart. And like everything you're aiming for is like, a, like it's kind of like a stretch goal. Like you're looking mm-hmm. long-term and you have to. Constantly. So I, I've run a couple marathons and I'm doing halves and 10 Ks these days. But something that baffles me is like, I'm gladly moving to the US, I've switched to miles because it seems more realistic. <laughs> so every time you say kilometers, I was like, oh gosh. Oh, God. Like, okay, what's that miles? That's yeah. still long. Okay, yeah. It's still so, really long, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's brilliant. And um, so some of these conversations, like obviously people are driven, they're working on things you want to achieve. Uh, what made you decide in your kind of roles? And some of it's been for life reasons. Um, you came to the Open University to work. Um, but what made you decide after you graduated with your PhD? This is only recent. Um, you finished your PhD. You did some amazing travel. What made you decide um, to pursue outside of higher ed? Because some people think we have to follow some academic track or academic yeah. track. Yes. Yeah. Well, my plan was always oddly enough to stay at the OU until after my doctorate and then I was going to assess the horizon because um you know the type of doctorate I was doing I did um I researched 76 presentations and 19 MOOCs that I had presented and made over a three-year period and so I I obviously needed to stay in access of that data because that that kind of data set does not exist anywhere else and and I decided to to do that and then in the October um, before I handed in in the January, I, I literally got a phone call out of the blue from a headhunter in Paris. And she just said, is this you? Is this what you do? And I said, it is. How can I help? Um, and she said, do you want to come do it for us? And I was like, do what exactly? And then she explained they needed a business school. They don't have one. They want one setting up. Um, would I like to come do it? And I went through seven interviews um, because they couldn't get the interview panel in the same room at the same time. And so they shipped me over to Brussels. I had interviews um, by Skype to Texas, to Paris, um, several in Paris because that's where the head office is. And all the time I'm keeping it quiet. And all the time I'm still going for promotions at the OU. But in academia, your face has to fit really well, I always feel. And I am as we all know, a strange oddity in life. And I don't necessarily fit the mold. And and I don't always necessarily see why you have to spend an X number of years doing a job to be seen as experienced in that job. Um, my role inside the OU was what I used to call the Poison Chalice Projects. It was all the ones that were an absolute pain in the backside or had failed previously or were running out of time, but they hadn't actually hit their targets. And my job was to go in and sort it and then carry on like the littlest hobo. So I moved projects within every single 12 months because they always had 12 months left and were always running into a financial year. And I always came up against this again and again and again and again inside the OU. Um, you move jobs too much, but could you come and do this project? Um, and I was like, I was stuck. I was very much stuck there and this opportunity was just too good. And I'd already worked in corporate before and I worked with corporates inside the OU to create them content and platforms. So it was kind of like I felt it was right. Um, I felt I could be a good fit for this company. This company has, um, it's a company called Solera Holdings. It has what's known as an uncommon philosophy. So if you don't fit the mold, if it's a little bit strange, this works for us. And I was like, at last, my kind of people. You know? <laughs> I can live in ambiguity. That's fantastic. I can be weird and people will embrace it. <laughs> um, and so far, that, that strategy that I had, that gut feeling, because I do work quite a lot on my intuition, um, has paid off. And now we're expanding the school far beyond what I was originally hired for, which as a professional kind of legacy is massive, really. And um, I kind of pinch myself every single day sometimes when I was going through that intense period of traveling that was being... The seven marathon interviews is what I'll call it now. Yeah. 
that's good yeah yeah it was just it was literally every single day was a different European country and uh, I was playing with my friends guess where I am today you know is it hotter is it colder is it further away do I need my passport today and Mm. and it was it was insanity really but it was such a whirlwind opportunity. Why would you turn it down? You know, sometimes you kind of have to go with stuff that you've never done before. Right outside my comfort zone is where I'm most comfortable. I like is that. The well, best way I can explain two it. things. First of all, you do have the background. So like you have a lot of transferable mm. and training skills. You have an MBA. You have some yeah. idea around what it means to uh, develop talent, to think about design mm. and learning. So I think that's a great fit. But secondly, you said something about fit the mold. And I'm like, shit, what is that mold for academia? And maybe that's my problem. So uh, what, yeah. what's the mold that you were concerned about? Because I think we have <sighs> assumptions and people say it. Yes. Um, if you're in uh, higher ed and you're a faculty or something, they have assumptions of what you are and who you are in a role. Yes. And so I kind of don't mention that to a lot of people that I play football or soccer with. Uh, they're mm-hmm. like, what do you do? I was like, I teach people. That's it. <laughs> so I make people better at their job. That's my job. I um, like to see how people learn. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't fit them all because I, I hadn't gone through, even though I worked at the Open University, I hadn't gone through a traditional university experience hmm. until a couple of years before I left the OU. I'd never stepped foot on an academic campus that wasn't the OU ever in my entire life. I'd never stayed overnight in a hall's residence. I had never taken a standard lecture. So I I just didn't fit. They didn't know how to place me as a person. I didn't dress like an academic. I dressed like a corporate in the way that I like dresses and high heel shoes. That's just me as a person. Um, But they were always at odds with how I was. I'm very laid back but very driven and people don't understand that either. Mm. Um, I like to inject a certain amount of sense of humor and lightness into meetings to build rapport with people, to get the best out of them. And I struggled massively with the bureaucracy of academia. I just wanted to get stuff done because that's just how I am as a person. But, you know, you have to go through a thousand different boards and meetings and they meet quarterly and they meet annually. and, And I just wanted to change the world. And I couldn't do it. Um, and now I don't have that problem. And now I can just do what I want when I want. And I bypass it by my board, which, you know, meets weekly. Um, because we're, they're always talking about everything going on inside the company. And it's, it's so much faster and it suits my kind of pace. Um, and then I can suggest something that I think is, you know, a little bit off wall for say corporate. So for example, we have an online offering, um, which is what I've been creating, but at the same time we have a face-to-face offering. So we do a blended experience. Everything is active practice-based learning online and we bring it through to a pop-up campus in one of the countries around the world in which we train the staff to be the trainers and facilitators so they're peer learning at the same time. We're not bringing in outside people that do not understand our uncommon company because anyone walking in, you will not understand the language that we talk, our methodologies or anything. Um, And then we use the flipped classroom method. Mm. So, and I just said, we should have flipped classrooms. And then everyone's like, what, what is a flipped classroom? I explain the methodology behind it. And, you know, you can, for example, send off a member of staff and say, your presentation skills are terrible. Go to this workshop. That's pretty standard. Watch someone present about how to present for two hours. Make some notes. Come home. And then eventually one day you'll have to present, you'll have to remember everything, which you won't, you'll cobble together something, you haven't practiced it, and you're not going to do a very good job. And then the manager's going to have a conversation with you going, I thought you went to the training. What went wrong? And the person sitting there going, I don't know. I don't know what went wrong. But in our school, using the uncommon method, so you, you learn about the art of storytelling and presenting, you build it into writing your own presentation, you practice it. Um, by recording yourself and watching yourself back. I gesticulate a lot. You're lucky that this is a podcast. And um, and so I know this about myself and I turn it into a comedy sketch whenever I'm doing a presentation as a result. But um, they, they, they watch themselves back. They then rehearse it again. They go in front of colleagues and they get feedback. 
and then they go in front of their manager. And what is different about our business school is I don't sign off any of the checkpoints. The managers do. So it's, it's really embedded into every single week. The manager gets an update as to what the staff are doing, how they're performing. They have to pass off the checkpoints because it's that manager who is developing that member of staff. So we've put it into management hands. And it's, it's really helped with a grassroots kind of push culture movement now. And managers are knowing now how their staff are presenting to clients where before they didn't know. Um, they then pass them through to the checkpoint. They then come through to the flip classroom. They've practiced presentations. They've got presentations with them. So in the true flip classroom style, they've done their homework and then they're bringing it into the classroom and then we're notching it up another level with pan-EMEA staff getting further feedback, grouping them together with the same client but in different countries, learning about different styles, different ways that different people have done things and they're seeing their colleagues across EMEA that they've probably never even met before mm-hmm. um, develop their presentation skills and then they come back to the office armed and ready that is worlds apart from the traditional method but I can do that in my company because we're uncommon and they gave me a clean slate so it's producing better staff as a result I think that's really smart and they've done something smart is to bring someone who has an unconventional way to learn and Mm. has learned and then you have the skill set technologically, you know, the theories and backgrounds, but you're applying it and you're seeing faster results because often what we do, and we don't in higher ed develop talent really well or retain it, but we will get Mm. to that. Um, I will say we don't develop the talent the same Mm. way um, that I know in corporate settings. So my experience, my partner works for one of the big three um, and they have coaching, they have mentor checkpoints, they have performance metrics, things that we don't actually do in practice in most learning places because I don't think a standardized test does it in, in our early childhood learning. I'm not sure every pedagogical course is different in higher ed. So unless you mm. find faculty or instructors that are strong teaching yep. and learning um, backgrounds, it's not going to be the same. It's not really what learning is or applied learning for what they'll do next. So I think we can have more infusion of people with the backgrounds in mm. corporate. Bring, I think we need some corporate into higher ed too. Like, to I do. Happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think there could be a really good blend happening um, because traditional L&D is not exactly what it is that I am doing, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also not doing traditional academia either. I'm kind of making a fusion um, because I've worked in academia and I was very blessed to work at the OU and my doctorate was with IET in the OU, which is the Institution of Educational Technology and has some of the greatest minds working there I got to see some amazing research and I got to bring it into corporate years before it would have standardly move through you know through the conferences the papers mm-hmm. into the practitioners who then write a practitioner's book which then people like us then read and then hopefully practice so so I'm kind of ramping up a little bit and I'm still keeping uh, a toe in in the fact that I still go to academic conferences as well as L&D type conferences as well yeah, because I want to know what's cutting edge. Does need, L&D learning development does need that crosswalk between mm. the conversations. And if you can speak, and it's funny, every sector or industry has different language. So like a corporate learning development would say X, it would mean this in higher ed, this in mm. K-12, this in training in this area. Like, so it, you just have to know how to talk the language. Yes. A lot of people don't have what, I think the skill set you're talking about is bringing that crosswalk to make that connection and said, well, we can apply this concept of flipped learning into yeah. this kind of training on sites and, and practice. Yeah. I think that's brilliant yeah. though. Yeah, but there's, there's so many great ideas that you see in, in academic papers and they, they trial it and, you know, they're going, oh, we're thinking about doing this. And I'm one of these kind of active action-based researchers where I just want to go, okay, can we just apply it and see what happens? Um, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to do it. Um, and I can do that, which is a liberating experience. Um, and then I get to see if it works or not. And if it doesn't work, oh, well, I'll try something else. But at least I tried. Um and it is, it is producing this whole culture because mm-hmm. we're using members of staff to train other staff. I've got this, what I call socialist L&D movement, which is this real kind of grassroots, we want it, what else can you provide us with? Every single course has got feedback on it. And they're going, can we have courses in this? Can we have courses in that? And um, we've actually got to the point now that we're too popular. 
<laughs> and, and I have a backlog wish list and they're going, well, can we have this and can we have that and can we do this and can we do that? And this is a company that had nothing before. And that's quite a difference in the, it's not an L&D department that's down a dusty corridor that people talk about once a year because they're having an appraisal. Right. Because the managers are involved in it. And that was a very uh, conscious decision that I made that, you know, managers should be, I mean, I learned this in my MBA, of course I'm going to say this, but they should be transformational leaders, not transactional managers. You know, if you're going to really build up somebody, make them into something great, you have to do that with them. They can't just do it by themselves. Not everyone is as ridiculously wired as I am in some ways. And some people need a bit of help and support. But at the same time, it's developing the manager as well. You know, they've got better management skills. They're closer to their staff. They're understanding their staff's needs more and, and looking at things differently. And so we actually have managers come to us and go, okay, we, we want to do a skills assessment. Um, we do a skills assessment with them. We, we assess that there's a gap. And then we can bundle and take these programs that I've created and all the individual courses, and we rebundle them into bespoke programs through unpacking everything and then repacking the bits that just they need. And then we produce that for them. So there's the standard paths that you can take in the business school or we can re-engineer something because there's nothing worse than being really good at one thing. Say, for example, value propositions, elevator pitches, whatever it may be. And then having to sit through a course because the program structure says you have to. And we're saying, no, we're uncommon. You don't have to. We can unpack it, repackage it and say, that will suit you and that will suit your problem and make it into that personal learning experience that we all talked about in higher education right at the beginning of MOOCs and even far before that. And I, I just thought it made sense to do it that way. Um, and again, that's, that's created great retention. So technically I'm making MOOCs because we're such a big company. Um, but I have a, as of this morning, because I thought I better look, um, I look weekly, but I thought I'll have a midweek look. Um, I have an 82% engagement rate um, and I have a 61% completion rate at present. All our courses are completely optional. Our business school is optional. In a MOOC, according to Katie Jordan, it's 10 to 15%. So we are streets ahead. Um, and I do believe it's because I've completely engineered something that the company needed rather than here's a platform, here's some courses, which is a standard L&D kind of approach. Um, off you go then. And, and we've created something very active. It sounds like employees are craving a bit of that development though and learning. And I would say it also sounds like what you've described to me is applied in other sectors like healthcare. Mm-hmm. You're doing a triage. You're doing an assessment Mm -hmm. of the needs. Uh, It's also like my engineering of performance improvement. Like what are the needs they actually need? And then how do you bring this together in a massive open online course or a platform that offers module learning or chunks of Mm -hmm. learning? Because what we know is many of our full-time professionals everywhere want on-demand, accessible, flexible ways to learn. And so now you've just kind of, you're building up your job. So you might need more people or more time or something because it sounds like you're... I can't stretch the time space (laughs) continuum. Sadly, I haven't got a doctor in that, but uh, I know, I know it's a bit soul destroying, but (laughs) yeah, I do. We've got to the point where I need a bigger team, um, which is a really nice place to be. Sure. Uh, because normally in a company, L&D is the thing that gets cut first. Mm-hmm. In this company, they're going, okay, what else can we throw at it? And that's a very different feeling because they've seen the results. My objectives, which is known as my mission inside my company, is that I have to ensure that staff are achieving double-digit growth in 46 countries. Mm-hmm. That's my that's my objective my objective is not make x number of courses or present x number of courses or what is standard in an lng job my job is to make sure people are selling better so your um, their return on investment for learning development is mm. x percent and you have yeah. something you're measuring towards i think that's yeah. great um yeah too far often we're like we want them to get through a course or yes. get a degree i was like so then what that doesn't then say what? yeah yeah. yeah, and this is it. And at the end of the day, a good L&D department can absolutely make a company and a bad one can bankrupt a company overnight. So the L&D department has to be really hardwired into the business strategy. So I sit on the SMT. Um, 
for EMEA and I'm, we're forever going okay well, with our alphabets are strategic management and training sorry sorry we live my life in acronyms um, <laughs> I, mean, I was guessing I was like strategic management team yeah. okay good, good. No. so I sit on that board with regional directors in different countries and and they're forever turning to me going okay what can we do we're launching a new project. Uh, we're launching a new product. We're doing this. We're doing that. And they all turn and go, what, what can you do, Hannah? What can we get? How can we get these people on board quickly? Um, and that's a really great place to have. So there's this real kind of top-down, bottom-up pull that's now happening. Um, and it is very satisfying because I wouldn't have got that in academia. Mm-hmm. And... And that is kind of upsetting in some ways. I mean, I, I love the OU with all my heart. It will always have a very special place for me. Um, but I get more fulfillment in corporate because I can do stuff quicker. I can get results that I'm looking for. I don't have to do a test case study and then write a paper about it and wait for it to be published and then decide, you know, if that's a good idea or not. I can just go, this is a good idea or not. And it's a very different world. Yeah, and I would well, I would say not to cast all of academia in that. Um, no, not sure. There I are. Can, some, I can do my job without it. No, um, and I will say there are some schools and institutions that are thinking nimbly and thinking about how they can test some lean ideas. And um, there's some really cool, I think, positions that I may have seen. Um, there's cool initiatives that are happening that are kind of grassroots and said, let's get feedback and reiterate. And so I think, um, but you have to be in the right climate to do that. And it sounds like yeah. you've had a lot of good support. I'm sure you had some initial kind of hurdles or challenges coming in. Um, yeah. What, yeah. what are some things that like you can share with our listeners that maybe things to think of if you're making a transition to um, a corporate environment that mm-hmm. maybe operate a little differently and yeah. maybe sometimes doesn't either? Yes. Yeah. There are, there are amazing parallels sometimes. And then there's also massive chasms of differences. The thing that was hardest, I think coming in was twofold was one, I was an academic and the only academic in my company. Mm. Um, So in 88 countries, I'm the only one that comes from an academic background and has an academic title. Um, So I do stand out in that respect and also people's um, perception of online learning because they're so used to the concept of we send somebody off for a two-hour workshop about presenting and somehow they're going to come back as this genius um, and this has never happened I think in the history of workshops but that's that's and I had to break that traditional mold and so you know you're faced in a room full of people going well what do you know and I I did actually have a conversation with the SMT and they you know there was a group in the SMT and they were like online learning doesn't work and I went oh shall I leave now then I mean I'm not one to speak my mind I'm never afraid to do it and they were like what and I was like I should go I should I should leave I've been only in the company a month and I was in Poland I think at the time and I was just like I should go and they're like what do you mean I was like well I come from the largest online university in the world all my qualifications are in online learning I developed online learning for around about 10 million people worldwide I've won countless global awards for it but if you think it doesn't work I should go because clearly you know better than I do Mm -hmm. and at that point they were like Wow. Okay. Because uh, in my company, we have all these pillars and one of the pillars is facts, force and finesse. And I'd apparently, according to my VP, successfully used all three while saying to them, what the hell do you think you're talking about? I clearly know better than you. And um, that actually, in me speaking up in a room full of men, apart from my VP, which is female, um, it got me some respect because they all assumed, as some corporate companies do, that if you're academic, you're soft and fluffy and you're a pushover. I have corporate-based business qualifications to my name just as much as I've got academic ones. Mm-hmm. And I've worked in prisons and I've worked in um, corporate retail. I mean, I've worked in hard sectors. And academia is no different it is just as cutthroat in many ways so they were expecting me to be soft and fluffy and really polite all the time and I am polite but I'm also to the point um 
And they weren't expecting that. So I think sometimes you, you spend a lot of time thinking, will I fit? Without thinking, what will they think of me? Mm. And some, with some of them, my MBA goes a lot further than my doctorate. Sure. And they have more respect for that because it's something they can understand. But in them seeing the school and, and them developing and they seeing their staff developing, then the respect has grown from that because they weren't entirely sure I could pull it off. Um, and so it, it has been interesting that way. And it is something to think about. It's not just how you're going to fit with the culture, but is the culture going to accept you? And what are you going to do to be not always part of it, because, you know, in the uncommon way, we should be uncoupling that culture and then adding our own little special spin on it. But it's, it's how that's going to actually take place, I think, is really important. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. the fitting into the company is a really good point. And um, I think the fit, um, you found a good fit, it sounds like, in culture. And it, mm. it's not always a title or the label or the letters after your name. Um, it's mm. also showing evidence, like you said, data. It's also showing evidence of it in action and people yeah. are learning and embracing it. And I think that's a strong parallel that um, mm. academia still faces. Like people say in higher ed, well, unless you're at a campus, it's not a true experience. Well, yeah. is, and what is learning and, you know, the yeah. most measured learning and assessed and scrutinized is online or blended or anything technology based. Mm. Well, I'd love them to step into a classroom with a regular teacher and see how they teach and let me evaluate them. They don't because it's not yeah. kind of digitally traced somewhere and it's mm. not the same metrics and um, yeah. scrutiny, I think. So um, it's interesting you say that because we talk about titles and levels and uh, you and I were chatting before just about uh, where people fit in and how people are leveled in a, a company. So it sounds like you have some opportunities to bring different voices forward in this development and work as a team at different levels, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, so all the teams that I work with in each course I produce, say, for example, it's a, a product-based course about one of our many products that we have. Um, I work with the product owners to create that course, and I actually put them through a course production process. And it's all documented out for them so they know which stage we're at. And it's a much smaller one. I mean, at the OU, it's 27 stage gate process. In this current job, it's 10 because I can remove quite a bit of the bureaucracy. Um, but I put them through a course production process. They understand what it's like then to produce a course. Many of them thought a course would be putting some PowerPoint slides online. No, 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 no. That's PowerPoint slides online. That is not a course. And so they. <laughs> They, as a result, understand the narrative, I work in plain English only. Uh, this is where I probably struggled the most as an academic. I refuse constantly to use academic, in some respects, superfluous language. I don't understand why I have to use that word to make my sounds more clever than I actually am. Why can't I just use the word that everybody knows? If education is meant to be open, and I work for the Open University in OER, and I now still in some respects work in a form of open education, um, that education has to be open. So my doctorate thesis apparently is very quick to read because there's no complicated sentence structures in there or anything like that. I got rid of it all um, because I wanted everything to be accessible to read so it means that the content is very easy to translate it's easy to understand if English is not your first language it's an additional language and so I really wanted that in that experience and so the staff that I work with I'm kind of training up in the art form of storytelling mm -hmm. and and when you create a course it is a narrative and it is a story and a journey that you're taking them on and it has to be told in such a way that they don't actually feel like it's overly arduous or tasking or boring or they have to do it. That's actually enjoyable, that it feels like they're listening to a person talking to them, but not in a way that it's like Jack and Jill went up a hill. But I mean, I'm talking about very technical pieces of software that we develop, but in a very straightforward way. Right. And and so that has kind of helped them understand the L&D process a lot more. And um, they themselves, as a result, have kind of developed. So even though not all of them have done the how to, you know, how to do great presentations, um, it's actually called Fundamentals and Sales, Part 3, Presentations and Presenting. But they haven't necessarily done it, but they've actually learned storytelling is really important even before they've got to that um it's not a case of you shove a bunch of 
info together on some slides and hope it all works. So the, it's been quite a, a learning curve. The teams change with every single course um, or every single program depending on what's in the program. And, and so that skill set is kind of developing across the company. And I didn't want it to all house inside me. I can't see the point of it. It is about, it's the socialist spread the love, spread the knowledge kind of way of doing things that I like to do. And I'd rather have lots of people in the company understanding this process than just one because then we build better content of results we construct our emails better because you know even down to that we're having a better phone conversation a better meeting a better presentation because they've learned this art of design um which they'd never considered before so um so yeah so it's it's quite an interesting process that the staff are kind of going through at the same time and it is new to them and they seem to be enjoying it. So that's quite nice because I keep on getting requests for more and more courses. And uh, I have a, a, I have about 30 on my list at the moment. And it literally grows constantly. Um, and I've produced since being there 141 courses in 15 months. Wow. So it's... I'm cranking out of some instructional design there. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to ask you what your next projects are, but I will ask, like, what are some resources um, or kind of go-to, whether they're, like, things you share with the production team? Like, what are some resources yeah. you share with them about that learning design experience? Like, that maybe we could share with some of our listeners. Anything you kind of go to and you're like, oh, this has been really helpful, X. Yeah. Yeah. There's a group that I really like on LinkedIn. It's created by, oh, it's been co-founded, should I say, by a really fantastic woman in L&D called Kate Graham. Um, And it's called Hashtag Women in Learning on LinkedIn. Because then obviously you are Hashtag Women in Learning. Everything's a one at call the group Hashtag Women in Learning. And men and women can join it, but it's about bringing forward women in learning and how to get us to the front. And at the moment, she's currently running a survey, um, which anyone can fill out regardless of gender, about women in learning and women in the workplace to help us fill that gender data gap. Um, Both Kate and I had read Invisible Women um, Mm -hmm. by Caroline Credo Perez, and I could only listen to it in 20-minute bursts because I was getting so angry (laughs) about the enormous gaps in data that there Mm -hmm. are surrounding Mm -hmm. women just everywhere just they're just it, I thought you know oh probably these areas but then you know bus routes as well why bus routes are designed for men it was it was an eye-opening experience so I particularly like that group um because there's a lot of sharing goes on there in the workplace um and is a really great resource that and it because it's LinkedIn and we're sharing and it's kind of like a curation discussion group it works really well um, to find things that either are in HE or they're in sort of corporate. And I kind of get the best of both worlds in that group, which is a really cool. phenomenally good resource. I'm going to go check them out. Absolutely. And Invisible Woman. I've, I've yeah. heard of that book. I haven't read it though. So because you know, it's, it- it's incredible. It is, it is basically the biggest literature review on the gap of women's gender data studies that has ever been. And every single chapter is about a different subject. And, and when you just about think it's over, another chapter comes along. And and I, I have friends that work in all these different fields. And I'm like, is this true? And they're like, yeah, it is actually. And, and even down to, I'm an ultra runner. And then I was talking to another runner going, is all everything we do um, designed on male data? And so we looked into it. You know, the training plans are designed on male data. Our heart rates our repetitions, how many hill repeats we should do, how many miles we should do. It's completely um, non-gender bias in the training plan, but is actually built on male data, even down to the clothing and the fabric and the wicking. Everything's Mm. down to how men sweat versus how women sweat, which is a delightful subject. But everything from the (laughs) training... It's a subject when you're running, though. (laughs) I mean, it is, believe me, getting comfortable clothing is everything. But, I mean, you know, it goes so far... And uh, it's a fantastic book. But if you do get angry every 20 minutes, it just means that I'm not alone on this. So um, <laughs> it took me a month and a half to listen to an audible because I just had to keep stopping it and having a little pace around the room and then starting it back up again. <laughs> Good to know. Oh, that's great. Um, 
So you have some new things on the horizon you're working on. Um, is there, is there um, anything else that's uh, kind of bringing you joy these days? So something that's making you happy or making you smile? Well, um, I, I use my running to get away from everything. Um, my, my WhatsApp message says, I'm, if, uh, if I'm not replying, I'm either in a meeting, out on a runner, ignoring you. Um, and that's kind of like my motto in life, really. But yeah, ultras give me great joy. They let me get away from the office. No one can get hold of you if you're in the middle of the Cotswolds very easily, which is rather great. Um, I'm actually learning how to drive, which is quite an interesting experience because I'm actually 37 in a couple of days and I never needed it before, but I have got an electric vehicle. It arrives this month. I'm kind of excited, Um, which means, to be fair, uh, I now live in Oxfordshire, which the infrastructure is terrible in comparison to living in the city, but my dog, um, who has quite a following, um, my little Toby, he he loves a car ride and basically he's emotionally blackmailed me into learning how to drive and getting a car because the volume of joy that dog gets from being in a car is so I wish I could bottle it and just keep it for myself never mind sell it um he just loves it so much that that gives me joy so I have all these road trips planned and because of my job um when I'm in the UK, as long as I'm connected to Wi-Fi, I can work from anywhere. So I can rent places all over the country and take Toby and go work literally all over the place and then run in different locations each morning and stuff like that. And that's kind of like the dream really is coupling everything I love in life, like happily together. Mm-hmm. So it's just starting to come together now. Um, so yeah, me and me and the Tobes are going to be road tripping around the country. So there'll be more Instagram stories, no doubt. <laughs> so yeah, he, he generates a lot of joy for a dog that thinks he's a cat. So um, was yours as well. So mine thinks he's a cat as well, and uh, uh, I enjoy following Toby around. And it's thank you for bringing him the car that's going to come. There's good luck. Um, yeah. You'll love the Toby road trip stories that are going to come because I've even researched a dog basket that will sit in the front that is steel rod enforced. (laughs) So it's completely safe because he can't sit on the back seat. He refuses. He will sit in the middle so he can see what's going on. And he doesn't want to sit in the back. He doesn't want to look out a side window. He has to be at the front. One of my friends went, the boot's really big because we went to the electric car show last weekend at Silverstone. When the boot's really big, Toby would be fine in that. Oh no, my dog doesn't go in the boots. (laughs) I'd be in so much trouble. He'd be so angry at me. Oh my gosh. Yes, for our American listeners, boot is trunk. Yeah, Boot is trunk, sorry. Yes. Covered, jumper, sweater. We can go through all the... the, the Yes, yeah. Um, It's only when my partner mentions it says things and like uh, I see friends look at me weird. I'm like, oh, that means this. So I translate yeah yeah no no, he's going to sit up front in the passenger seat in his own little special thing that I'm having done for him and we'll just go on endless road trips together because he does ultra marathon training with me he's 10 Mm -hmm. uh, but he can do 20 miles um he does one pace he does it very well uh and then he comes home has dinner and then wants his walk because he's had his dinner and uh, (laughs) And you're like you just run a bunch of miles so what's wrong with you I know we did we did a hundred miles in a week over Easter, um, wow. to, and it was one week after he'd had surgery on his ear, and he was bored being inside. So I just thought I'd take him out on a couple of long walks, and a hundred point four miles later, <laughs> we finished for the week. And yeah, he's great. It's good to know that you run and work him as much as I work Jack. No, um, I think uh, <laughs> you will enjoy the travels with him. No, yeah. Yeah, Toby Toby has his own Instagram just so I don't constantly flood people <laughs> pictures of my dog. But yeah, so he has his own following. It the entourage is known as the Tobarage. There's okay. a hierarchy in it. Um there are some founding members who take pole position and he has a birthday party every single year on his birthday and um the amount of people that turn up for my dog's birthday party is astounding. And uh, last year it was dinosaur themed and this year he's 10 and he is Citizen Tobes Pierre and the Reign of Terror because he's born on Bastille Day. 
So we're oh, having a French yes. theme party this year. Vive la birthday. Um, oh, vive I love birthday. it. We're sharing Toby's um, Instagram as well. So friends from the pod can listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's a very sarcastic doggo, but he's a good boy. <laughs> I love it. Um, and then before we wrap up, I have to ask if uh, you're going to gather with friends, colleagues, family, mm. what's your go-to beverage? Is it wine? Is it something else? I am, I'm like a drinks chameleon. I spent a little bit of time thinking about this and can't now decide whether or not I have a slight drink problem or I'm just open to ideas. Um, yeah, well, it depends on the occasion, really. Um, during my doctorate, every single year that I passed, I had a bottle of Berth Tico. So mm. now in my home office, I have, um, I'm just turning my camera so Laura can see. Mm. an entire stack of <laughs> empty Verve Pico bottles that is my hallmark of every single year. Um, I also have a drinks cabinet in my home office. As you should. Yeah, that makes sense. As, as every good home worker should. Um, so with my friends, I mean, I, I drink cocktails and things like that, Prosecco, but I'm actually a whiskey drinker. Oh, and it has to be, your husband will be happy to know, it has to be Irish whiskey um, or Japanese whiskey. What's your what's your favorite Irish whiskey? Kilbegan. Oh, and it's, yeah. you can't get it very easily outside of Ireland. So I have to actually go to Ireland, to County mm. Clare, do the distillery, and I have to come across on the ferry because I can't fly it back because of liquids restrictions. That's right. And then I have to buy a stash of it and then bring it back. Well, and I know, I don't let road, anyone I know it, when your road trip's going to be then. That's good. Well, this is it. Toby's going to get a little doggy passport and then that will be him. <laughs> I love it. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat about Toby, about the bottle stash, about your mini miles <laughs> you're going to run, and how you're really thinking about designing learning with colleagues in the corporate setting. I think they're so lucky to have your wealth of information you brought from academia to them. And I hope one day you come back and conquer higher ed as well. So bring that back to us. <laughs> a world domination strategy. You yeah, never yeah. Know what's up my sleeve? <laughs> exactly. I love it. Uh, don't change. And please don't be a stranger. You're welcome back anytime yeah. to the pod. And Thank you. have a chat always. So we appreciate it. That'd be great. Thank you. Be sure to catch the next podcast episode by subscribing to the In Vino Fab wherever you find and subscribe to podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab and we'll always welcome love and messages by email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers!